Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter number 6 tonight, Mark chapter number 6. While you turn there, I want to amplify on a couple things in the uh, in the bulletin there. Jim knocked it out of the park, but there's some stuff that I wanted to sort of, uh, you know, give you a little bit of context for. A couple things. One, our uh, First Impressions ministry. I'm excited about this. Something we've needed for a while at our church. And we got some fellows that do a great job, and they've really sort of filled in the hedge uh, of that not being sort of an official ministry, but just them uh, being there to offer a warm smile and to, to greet folks as they come in. But we want to make that a little bit uh, a little bit more of, of an intentional ministry. So we're going to be doing that this next year. What this meeting is on the 8th, it's the inaugural meeting of the Exploratory Committee for Information and Enlightenment of the First Impressions Ministry. All right. So uh, <laughs> what all that means is uh, what all that means. It's just an information meeting. So if you're interested in it, you can come. You can ask questions. We'll give you information about it. And, uh, you know, we're hoping probably by at least February to have that set up. Uh, but we just wanted to have an initial meeting to get some information uh, out there to folks and let them know kind of what that entails because we've not done anything like that uh, in, in quite a while. And, uh, and the reason we mentioned in the bulletin that we're looking for men and married couples and the reason we're uh, doing it that way, sometimes when you're a greeter, you know, people come in, they ask for help, want to talk to the pastor and everything. And so we didn't feel comfortable asking ladies to be in that situation by themselves. And uh, so we felt like it would be good to make sure that there's a fella back there. And if we're going to have a fella back there, as with anything we do in ministry, we don't want to uh, throw people uh, together. So we want you to be sure and be praying about that and uh, and interested in that. And it will be a rotational thing, so you won't have to do it every week. Uh, but we'll have a schedule that will rotate. And we just ask you to be faithful. Amen. Everything we do, we ought to be faithful in, shouldn't we? Uh, what a sad testimony that it would be of us if we'd not be faithful to a God that's so faithful to us. So we want you to be sure and have a part in that. Another thing that I wanted to mention to you is that youth conference. We're doing it a little different this year. In the past years we've done it, we've done it on multiple days. Uh, and over the past year, our youth ministry has trended towards younger children. And so uh, fearing that they might not have the stamina for uh, three days in a row, we're going to pack that into one day. And so it's going to be a big, action-packed, fun-filled day for our young people. We're going to have a couple of preachers preaching to them, and uh, they'll be getting the Word of God. So I encourage you to be sure and have your young people at that service as well. Mark chapter number 6 tonight. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 34. Mark chapter number 6. I, this this truth has been on my heart, and I I, 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 I shudder to say it's going to be a simple message tonight, because every time I say that, I, I, I preach for six hours, amen. But I do feel like this might be a uh, sort of streamlined message, and I want to share what God's laid on my heart this evening. Mark chapter number 6, verse number 34. The Bible says, And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were a sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away, that they may go into the country round about and into the villages, and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. He answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred pennyworth of bread and give them to eat? He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say five and two fishes. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and brake the loaves 
and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. And all God's people said amen to that. Amen. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out. For they all saw him, and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them, and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased. And they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, we love you tonight. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for my church family, Lord. Thank you that I have a place I can come and worship you. Lord, I can be around those that encourage my heart. I just pray that you'd help us as we approach your word tonight to have hearts that are open and set upon you. Lord, may we desire to hear from you that which would bring you glory and make us more into the image of Christ. Lord, we want to see an eternal work done in us that pleases you. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When we read this passage of scripture, we immediately notice that there are two miracles that are contained within it. And at first glance, it would appear as though these two miracles are not necessarily connected. There are several times in the Gospels, several occasions where Christ fed multitudes of people. There are likewise several occasions where Christ calmed a stormy sea. And when we read these passages, it would appear almost as though they're merely a catalog, just sort of entries in the miraculous works of Christ in his earthly ministry. All until we come down to verse 51 and 52. And I want you to notice them again with me. The Bible says he went up in unto them into the ship and the wind ceased and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wonder. Now, let's pause there. Here's what the Bible says. They were shocked. They were shocked at what Jesus had done. They could not believe that he had the power and the ability and the concern and compassion to calm this storm. But then notice the indictment that the Holy Spirit gives against him in verse 52. It says this is why they were sore amazed. This is why they were shocked. This is why they wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves. For their heart was hard. When I read that passage of scripture, I am struck by the fact that there's a direct connection and correlation between what Christ has done in the feeding of the 5,000 and between this miracle where Christ calms the storm upon the sea. What strikes me is that evidently Christ was teaching something in miracle number one that would inform and transform miracle number two. The thing that, and maybe I've just got this on my mind, you know, we've been preaching series and we've been talking about the incarnation. We've been at Christmas time and we've spent a lot of time here lately talking about how people miss the point. 
We talk about Christmas season. People miss the point, you know, and uh, how that they, they don't see what it's really about. That it's not really about the, the gifts, not really about the food, not really about the festivities, not really about the, the babe in the manger per se, but rather it's about God robing himself in flesh and walking amongst man. But somehow all of society just seems to sort of miss the point. And when I come to this passage of Scripture, I don't find a blind world missing the point, but rather I find God's people missing the point in what Christ had done earlier in this passage. It got me to thinking about the things that God does in our life. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, what they missed in the miracle. God's done some amazing things in my life. Can you testify that that's been true of you? God's done some things that that could be called nothing less than a miracle. I mean, I've seen God heal people that, that doctors had given up on. I, I've seen God pay bills and, and had no clue where it came from. I've seen God mend homes that seemed to be irreparable. I've seen God break hearts that seemed hard as stone. And I've seen Him patch together and bind together hearts that seemed like they would never be whole again. I've seen God do some amazing, miraculous things in my life. But sometimes I wonder if we don't sit back and do as the disciples and merely stare in startled and stupid amazement at what God has done, and miss the greater point of what God wants to do in your life and in my life. See, no miracle that Christ ever did was a miracle for a miracle's sake. It always had a greater purpose. I think we could say it this way, every miracle has a message. Everything that God does in your life, He's teaching you something through it. Every blessing has a lesson. Every work of God imparts the wisdom of God. Nothing that God does in your life or mine is meant to just be a self-contained spectacle of His ability. God's not trying to impress you or impress me or prove to either one of us that He's God, but rather He is molding and shaping us and developing us into being the kind of Christian that brings glory to Him and that is salt and light in a dark and bland world, and as such, everything that he's done, everything that he's done in my life, from the point of saving me, and really, if I'm to be honest, even before he saved me, because the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, things that God did even before he saved me in working in my heart and life, and certainly from that point and forward, and everything that God's done, when I stop and consider it carefully, I find that the same indictment that the Spirit of God makes against the disciples could really be made against me. I'll just be honest with the church. Most of the time, I miss the point. Most of the time, I just stand back and, and, and sort of scratch my head and, and wonder at it and say, boy, ain't God good. And, and I think that's a wonderful uh, truth to gain and glean from what God does. But I wonder if often there are not deeper things God is trying to show us that we miss because we're just so focused on the miracle that we've lost sight of the Master. That's what happened to them in Mark chapter number 6. They were so focused on the miracle that they missed what it taught them about the Master. The Holy Spirit said that they would not have responded this way if they had considered the miracle of the loaves. And I've got three simple truths I want to share with you tonight. Lessons they should have learned. When they looked at what Christ did with those loaves and fishes, these are things they should have learned. Sadly, they didn't. And often in our lives, God does things and we miss these very same truths. So let's go back and look at our text. And let's consider what that miracle should have taught them. Notice with me verse 34 first off. 
The Bible says this, and Jesus, when he came out, saw much people. Now, this is talking about the multitude that he would go on to feed. He saw much people, and notice how he responded. The Bible says he was moved with compassion toward them because they were sheep not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. You know, the first lesson they should have learned that they missed was the lesson of his pity, that he's a loving God. I I feel like we so often, it's dangerous to be a reactionary person. When you become reactionary in the way that you live your life, you allow the enemy to define who you are and how you live. And I feel like sometimes in an effort to be reactionary against a, a soft world, we sometimes try to make God harder than how he presents himself. You say, now preacher, isn't, doesn't God have, you know, any angry with the wicked? Absolutely. Is the wrath of God abiding on a lost world? Absolutely. Is God going to come back and judge this world and whoop everybody and, and you know, uh, you know, get rid of all the politicians and all my enemies and that neighbor that didn't return my leaf blower? Absolutely he is. He's going to do all those things. But can I remind you in the midst of all of those things that he is a loving God. Uh, love is one of the characteristics that is described as part of God's essence. Now, it's not to say that love is God, but God is love. And it's one of the elemental qualities of his personality is that he is a loving God. They come to this stormy sea and all of a sudden Christ is not present there. And no doubt they began to ask what you and I have probably asked hundreds of times when storms come into our life. Lord, if you really loved me, why would you let this happen? And yet he had just taught them that he was a loving Savior. He had just showed them that when this mass of people, and people are nasty. Fun fact number one in the message tonight, people are nasty. I was walking through Walmart the other day. I'm losing, I don't know if it's my age, I don't know if it's just cantankerousness, I don't know what it is, but I'm losing my filter. And I was, I was walking through Walmart the other day, and I was walking through it, and out loud, I was looking at people and going, pajamas. Pajamas, 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 pajamas. They're just looking at me like I was crazy. Everybody wearing pajamas, you know, <laughs> like like we're some kind of third world. Pajamas, pajamas, pajamas. And uh, <laughs> I'm just I'm losing my filter. And, you know, when, when you get around masses of people, they're nasty. We have this view in mind of all these beautiful little perfect nuclear family units that are gathered around him that day with their with their Bibles set open. Our theology has been defined by those children's story Bibles with the pictures. But, you know, if you were actually there that day, you would have seen a teeming, seething mass of sick, broken, impoverished, filthy individuals. And Christ looks out at that multitude And rather than me being filled with revulsion, he's filled with compassion. You know, they could have looked at it and said, you know, if he could love them, I bet he loves us. He's loving them in grace. They've never done anything for for him. And, you know, if he loves them, there's no doubt. He's told us he loves us. There's no doubt that he loves us, too. They would have learned two things about his pity. Number one, they would have learned this, that he would not desert them. Whenever Christ looks at this big mass of people, he doesn't do what you or I would be tempted to do, just turn around and walk away from the mess. But instead, he the Bible says he was moved with compassion because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And what did he do? He began to teach them many things. 
Now, no doubt they thought he had deserted them. The Bible says down in verse 47, when he was when the even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone on the land. And no doubt they thought in that moment he's done forgot about us. He has left us. He has abandoned us. He has deserted us. But I like what verse 48 says. And he saw them toiling in the row. Hey, they might have not been within his reach, but they were never out of his sight. Maybe they couldn't reach out and grab hold of him for comfort. But he was present there watching and beholding everything that they were experiencing. They would have been greatly comforted amidst that storm if they had just realized he wasn't going to give up on them. He wasn't going to abandon them. He wasn't going to desert them. He didn't desert all these people. He wasn't going to desert them. You know, it's amazing the hubris, the pride, the arrogance, the self-centeredness that we sometimes display God's got this broken, unbroken, spotless track record of faithfulness. And we think our problems are so big that they're going to scare him away. Here's the truth. God's faced bigger problems than you or I will ever even see. Uh, He's not going to desert us. They, They would have learned he would not desert them. But then I like this. Down in verse 35, we're back here at the feeding of the 5,000. It says, when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, this is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away that ye may go, that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. He answered and said unto them, give ye them to eat. Look at the, the comparison there. Do a split screen. Here's the disciples saying, send them away. Here's Christ saying, no, give them something to eat. I would say it this way. He would not desert them. But number two, he would not dismiss them. He would not look at them and see them as too bad of an investment and shoo them away because he's uninterested in dealing with the mess of their problems. You know, we get so used to in this atomized society that we live in, no one having time for the problems that we go through. And I understand that. I, listen, I'm, I mean, I'm sure people do that with me. I'm sure I do it with other people. But man, what a comfort it is to know that God's always got time for what we're going through. We can cast our care upon him. Why? Because he careth for us. We don't have to be afraid. We're going to get to be too much trouble, too much static for him. He knew what we were when he saved us. You understand, he died, He became your sin on the cross. When he bought you, you were at your worst. You understand that? The consolidated disobedience, rebellion, and, and, and iniquity of your life was taken and placed upon him at once. Sometimes, you ever met somebody that you could handle them in doses? I've known people like that, man. I can handle them in doses. But now, if I had to be around them all the time, one of us would, would need, you know, a pallbearer. I mean, it's it, we just couldn't. But you understand, he didn't take us in doses. When he died for us, all of our sin was collectively placed upon him. In other words, he didn't just know you at your worst. He knew you at your worst worst. He bought you and saved you when all that is the worst about you was piled up in one place and laid on his shoulders. So why then would we think, you know, my life's just too big of a mess. God's done with me. I understand we don't say it that way. We're too spiritual to say it that way. But that's what we think. We think to ourselves, now, I have this measure of problems, and God will abide with me and help me with those problems. 
But then when we say, well, I guess God's failed me. I guess he's abandoned me. I guess he's deserted me. I guess he's not going to answer. What we're really saying is our problems have become overwhelming to God. It has changed the equation. It has changed the nature of our relationship. And now he will not help me. What we're really saying is he's looked at us and said, sorry, you're too much. But the truth is he knew everything we were and he saved us anyway. Here's what they would have learned. They would have learned the lesson of his pity. Notice the second thing. I like this. Down verse 37. Uh, at the end it says, They say unto him, Shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them to eat? Have you ever noticed some people will do anything in the world to help anyone in need with somebody else's money? They think it's a great idea for you to be charitable that's how government is. That's what socialism is. Socialism, I had somebody ask me one time, because in the book of Acts, you know, it talks about there's a period of time in the local church, they had all things common. And um, somebody asked me one time, they said, and, I, and this was this was before I was ever a pastor, I was a youth pastor, a guy I went to church with, he, he said, you know, what is that all about? What do you think is, you know, I mean, that kind of sounds like communism or Marxism. I said, well, there's a marked distinction, right? One's motivated by grace, the other's motivated by a gun. And, uh, you know, the socialists, they, they don't mind spending money. It's just not their money. It's your money. <laughs> the Marxists want to spend everybody else's money. And I, I kind of, I, I chuckle when I read this because I'm sure this had to be what the disciple is, is thinking. I mean, uh, Jesus says, give ye them to eat. And, and he's like, that's a great plan. What are we going to give them? <laughs> what he's really saying is, Lord, you have a great uh, motive here. But you have no means to accomplish it. He says, shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them to eat? I don't know how much 200 penny worth of bread is, but I know dinner on the grounds takes a lot more than that to feed everybody. So it must not be much. And he saith unto them, how many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say five and two fishes. And then I like this, verse 39. He commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like a man that has a plan. I love what we're told in John chapter number six. And I, I'm sort of of the opinion it's a separate occasion of a feeding of a, of a similar sized group. But Philip has a very similar conversation with the Lord. And whenever Christ says, give you them to eat, John tells us that that this he did asked tempting him, you know, asking him to think about to ponder it. And then it says this for he knew what he would do. In other words, he wasn't sitting around scratching his head saying, well, maybe we can scrounge something together when he asked them how many uh, loaves and fishes. He's God. He already knew how many loaves and fishes there were. And let me say, it could have been five and two. It could have been five hundred and two hundred. It could have been a half and a quarter. It wouldn't have mattered. Because he already knew that he miraculously was going to provide for this mass of people through his own power and ability. And so he immediately begins to say, all right, we'll set everybody down, set them over there, set them over there, everybody real orderly. He begins to immediately carry out a plan that he had. Let me say it this way. I'm preaching all around it. I'll just say it. They should have learned the lesson of his plan. Now, lest you misunderstand me, I don't mean they should have preemptively guessed what he would do there on the stormy sea. But they seem to be under the impression that Christ has no plan. And can I just calm your nerves tonight? There's never been a moment that God had no plan. He knows all things. He's, he's a God of order. He's not a God of confusion. And He always has a plan. Now that plan may not 
accomplish the things you desire for it to accomplish. It may not do it on the timetable you wish, or it may not do it in the manner that you are expecting. But he is never without a plan. We notice two things about that immediately. Number one, we notice the existence of his plan. He immediately begins to tell folks, sit down. You know why? Because he knows, as John chapter 6 says, he knows what he's going to do. And you may be in a situation where you say, you know, preacher, I I have no plan. And it's not because I don't want a plan. And it's not because I don't wish I could plan. It's because I don't see a path. I don't see a plan. I don't see a way. Let me calm you tonight and encourage you a little bit. You can rest in the in the providence of God knowing that you may not have a plan. It's a good thing you and I aren't God because the one that is God, he does have a plan. I see the existence of his plan. But then verse 41 says this, when he had taken the five loaves and two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and break the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And I like this next phrase. And they did all eat. And we're filled. You know what I like here? I like the excellence of his plan. His plan was better than their plan. Their plan was let's send them out into the into the countries and villages to go buy uh, something to eat. But really, all that's predicated on is passing the buck. They had not gone around and took a poll and determined that everybody had lunch money with them that day. Uh, they had no clue whether people had the means to go and provide for themselves. Really, the only thing their plan accomplished was making that problem no longer their problem. Can I say we live in a world that that is the sum total of the strategy of most plans? How can I just make this problem not my problem? Right? Uh, let's kick it down the road a little further. The next generation, the next people, they'll deal with it. They'll face it. I'm glad he didn't do that. He solved the problem. He had a plan, and that plan was superior to the plan that they had. And let me just remind you, his plans are always better. I told you it was going to be a simple message. His plans are always better. However good you think your plan is, if it ain't his plan, it ain't as good as his plan. His plan is always better. And I can say in my life, you've heard me give this testimony before. If I if I took and, and set myself as 16 years old on this side of the pulpit and then put myself today at 35 years old and tried to draw a straight line between where I was then and where I am now, working 100 hours a week, saving every penny I've got, trying to make prudent life decisions, trying to get it together, I could not have gotten where I am. I could not be where I am today had it not been for the goodness and providence of God. And so the best plan I could have mustered, if I had took both brain cells and rubbed them together, would not have even come close to equaling a, a, an nth of God's plan. I'd say this, man, his plan's better. You don't want your plan. You're, let me go ahead and tell you, I ain't trying to hurt your feelings. Your plan's terrible, all right? I'm going to help you out in life. You ready? Your plan, whatever it is, is terrible. Go ahead and just, just dock it to the side. Forget about it. God's plan is better. Say, preacher... God's plan is my plan. Then now you're doing something right. Now you're doing something right. But if you have a choice, always make sure it's God's plan because his plan's always more excellent. So they should have learned the lesson of his plan, that he has a plan. And then notice finally, and I'm done, verse 42 says this, and they did all eat and were filled. I love this. God is, is here's how I imagine. You ever been to one of these Brazilian restaurants where they just, they walk around with big swords that have hunks of meat on them? Any of y'all know what I'm talking about? Some of y'all do. I know who ought to be tithing. Amen. And uh, they, walk, <laughs> they walk around with those big hunks of meat on there. 
And I don't know if you've ever been to one of these places. They give you a little card, a little, uh, the, at least the one in town does, gives you a little circular card. And it, it's red on one side. And, um, well, actually, I should say this. It's green on one side. And I don't know what it is on the other side because I ain't never flipped it over. Amen. <laughs> but, uh, it, it's, it's red on one side, green on the other. And here's what you do is you just sit there. And if it's green side up, everybody that walks by is carrying food. They're going to stop at your table. And they're going to say, they're going to say, senor, you know. Filet, you know, sausage, you know, and they're, they're going to give you. And then when you're when you're full, you're going to take it and you're going to flip it over the red side. And that's letting them know, I'm sorry, I'll die if I eat another bite. And that's sort of how I envision that. I mean, the disciples just carrying around baskets, of cornbread, handed out to people, you know, and I love that. Here was Philip's plan. You take whatever meager means you've got and try to scrounge together the best that you can find and hope it keeps you from starving. Here's God's plan. I'm going to take this little meager bit and multiply it to such a way that you are entirely filled, bursting, overflowing. I'm talking about red side up. Lord, I cannot eat anymore. His plan's better than your plan. It's better than my plan. When are we going to learn that? They should have learned the lesson of his plan, but then they should have learned the lesson of his power. They did all eat and were filled. They should have learned all the way back at this miracle. If he could do that, he can do anything. I mean, you understand that that there are times that that storms just all of a sudden blow in and then blow out. But biscuits don't magically multiply. Cracker Barrel has to do that for you. They don't just automatically multiply. What he did there was far more a display of his divine power than what he did when he calmed the storm. They should have learned this, that he had power to deliver them. Man, if he could do that, he could do this. You know, and and I mean, what I'm about to say, you already know, it's going to sound redundant, but man, it needs to be said. I'll stir up your pure mind by way of remembrance. If he could save you, what are you facing bigger than your sin debt? What are you facing bigger than, bigger, bigger than your sin? What, what are you facing that's scarier than an eternity in hell to you? Man, if he could handle that, then he can handle whatever that you're facing. He's the God that created all things. He's the God that parted the sea. He's the God that stopped the sun. Uh, listen, he's the God that turned the sundial backwards. He's the God that slew armies just with the power of his word. If he can do all those things, what do you think he can do in your life and mine? I'd say this, they should have seen his power to deliver them. But then there's a final thing. I, I like this. Let me get a little bit esoteric here with you, all right? Look at verse 43. And they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about 5,000 men. Now, here's what I love. He delivered them in that moment for that need. But he not only did that, he gave them leftovers to meet a future need. You know, in this we find uh, almost a picture of what spiritually he was doing in banking faith in their life for the future storms, both literal and figurative, that they would face. Just as he met that immediate need, but in meeting that immediate need, he also laid up in store for the future needs there would be. So likewise, in displaying his power and bolstering their faith in this miracle, he was laying up for future storms, problems, trials, the faith that they would have needed. And had they not been so hard-hearted, they could have benefited from. 
Let me say it this way. We see his power to deliver them, but then we see his power to develop them. In other words, he's doing more than just what he's doing right now. You understand that a God that inhabits eternity can't even only work just right now? I'm going to say that again. I don't think you computed that. Somewhere we missed. You're still buffering out there. A God that inhabits eternity. So he's outside of time and he's within time. He doesn't interact with time like you and me, right? Everything past and everything future is as present as this moment is to him. He is equally present in every moment throughout human history and in the future of humanity and even outside of those things from everlasting to everlasting. As such, it's not even possible for him to work exclusively in one moment of time. He is always working in every moment of time. How naive it would be to believe that what God's doing is just that one singular thing in our life. He paid a bill, but didn't he do much more than that? Hey, listen, he gave you a good report, but didn't he do much more than that? I Listen, he, he gave peace in your home, but didn't he do much more than that? Wasn't he trying to teach you that what he could do then... He could do when the bigger storms arrive, when the bigger problems arrive. And so the question becomes, are we going to miss the point or are we going to take to heart these truths? I, I don't have no more message. I'm done tonight. But can I just say this in closing? The problem was not a head issue. It was a heart issue. Their heart was hardened. They didn't want to admit that he did for them something they could not do for themselves. And their pride prevented them from benefiting spiritually from what God was seeking to. See, they had to reduce it to nothing but merely filling bellies. Else they would have to admit that their faith had been stunted and it needed to grow. Often we want to reduce it to, well, God just paid a bill. No, could be God's trying to get you to trust him. Oh, well, all God did was just gave me a good report. No, could be that God's trying to get you to trust him. Until we're willing to admit that, we're going to miss what God's doing in our life. So here's the humility that, that we're called to. Lord, what are you teaching me? What are you showing me? Hey, you're in the midst of a trial. Uh, you ought to look back. Hey, run back the replay a little bit in your life. Say, now, what did I learn about God when he did that? Did I learn that he loves me? Did I learn that he's able? Did I learn that he has a plan? Did I learn his timing is impeccable? Right, it buffets our pride to have to admit it. But, oh, it's the only way that we're going to grow. Let us not miss the point in what God's doing. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. I want to give you an opportunity and invite you to come to the altar. God spoke to your heart about anything. You might be going through something right now, and you don't want to miss the point. You might be going through something, and in struggling, you say, I need to go back to some of the things that God did do and try to gain the point. Maybe you'd look at it and you'd say, God's been doing something great in my life. But I know, sure as anything, storms are coming, and I want to make sure I learn and glean in my life what he's doing and be ready for those moments. Whatever God dealt with you about, meet him in this altar. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify Christ. In his name we ask it.